0: the 7th of July, and you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast on markets and economies from DBS Group Research here in Singapore. I am Temur Baek Chief Economist. Welcome you to our 20th episode. Today, we will talk about an issue that is taking up an increasingly central role in the boardrooms of central banks and companies worldwide, the intersection of financial stability and climate risk. Typically, in the past, financial stability considerations entailed scanning the financial sector for signs of undercapitalization, excessive risk taking in areas such as real estate or other asset markets, or the risk of macro imbalances, say an overvalued exchange rate, causing distortions in lending and investing, which in turn could create large losses and bankruptcies. If you, for instance, look at the IMF's Global Financial Stability reports from five years ago, You will see chapters on the interest rate cycle, capital flows to emerging markets, market liquidity, credit risks, housing markets, dollar funding, corporate leverage, and stuff like that. While those considerations remain of paramount importance, recent such reports from multilateral organizations will these days feature novel sections like the universe of environmental, social, and governance principles to investing in climate risk. And I think it is safe to say that Europe is today leading the way in focusing on how to assess the risk from climate change and how that will manifest in financial distress. Institutions like the European Central Bank and the European Systemic Risk Board, ESRB, are at the center of initiatives to collect and analyze data as well as establish Reporting standards so that we can all have the right information and reporting to understand if financial markets are pricing climate related risks adequately. Some of the numbers related to climate change are alarming, to say the least. In its recent report, ESRB states that physical damage from climate change could reach one tenth or even one fifth of global GDP by the end of this century, with considerable uncertainties around amplifying dynamics. In terms of current global output, This would amount to something like $8 to $17 trillion. Climate-related losses have been mounting lately, and insurance companies are already being impacted by them. But surely, we are nowhere close to appreciating the true nature of risks that lie ahead. We need to learn and figure things out quickly. So for the sake of our financial and physical well-being, let's try to get to the bottom of this from the experts in this field. This brings me to our guest today, Paul Hebert. Paul is the Head of Systemic Risk and Financial Institutions Division at the European Central Bank. He also represents the ECB in the European Systemic Risk Board and the Network for Greening the Financial System. In fact, other than an interlude serving as an advisor to the IMF's Monetary and Capital Markets Department in 2016-17, Paul has spent nearly two decades at the ECB in various capacities, including in divisions like Fiscal, External, and Euro Area Macroeconomic Developments. Before ECB, Paul served the government of Canada in the late 1990s. Paul Hibbert, welcome to Copy Time.
1: Thanks a million, and really glad to be with you today, Tamo.
0: It's a real pleasure, Paul, to have you. Paul, uh, we are worried about climate risk. And of course, from DBS's perspective and from most people's perspective, we are always worried about financial stability risk. Now, your job title suggests you focus on the latter, but some of the reports that you've been associated lately suggest that you're spending a lot of time on climate risk. Are these two issues converging in your day-to-day work
1: at the ECB? Absolutely. And um, interestingly, I think climate's really been the ascendance in terms of the attention it captures, not just at the ECB, but I think across policy institutions, as largely it's been, you could argue, amongst the civil society through the financial markets. Um, and in general, I think it's just a question of we're seeing a bit more salience of climate risks. Um, and until the COVID shock came, really, I think it had been in the ascendance. And I think the COVID shock was a temporary interaction, interruption in a sense and even a reminder of some of the elements which could be troubling for us. So certainly it's it's become a, a focal point for us, and it's one is probably going to occupy anything, only more attention.
0: Right. And uh, the fact that, you know, you have gotten busy with this thing and others are going through lots of initiatives, and toward the end of this discussion, I'd like to actually talk some of the, about the international initiatives. But for now, uh, it seems to me that there are others out there who would say that the connection between climate change and financial market risk is, you know, tangential. So if you could help us, you know, with some understanding about the financial risk exposures in Europe and around the world from data that is available today.
1: Sure thing. Um, And look, I think you have to look no further than the ongoing health pandemic to think about how large shocks um, can really destabilize financial markets, economies, and also put a strain on government finances. Um, and think about all three of these things are really hallmarks of financial stability risk. So things that we should be monitoring in the public sector when we're looking at the financial stability issues in the landscape. Um, and arguably, you know, whilst the pandemic or, or, or was potentially not as foreseeable as some of the elements of the climate change, um, neither is specifically predictable. And of course, we have this old uh, issue of trying to discern between known unknowns and unknown unknowns and unknown unknowns as alike. Um, that you used to have with the old uh, Donald Rumsfeld type of, of typology. And, yeah. and here, the, the idea, if you recall that, from a long time ago. Um, but the idea is, of course, it's a, it's a bit about uncertainty versus probabilistic risk. And, and I think as we learn more about, um, through, through climate scientists' eyes, but also through our own work in the financial sphere, um, we're learning more and more about the, the, the issue, which I think brings it out of the realm of uncertainty and more into the realm of probability. And maybe I can just walk you through a little bit why why I think that in the end you could argue um, and reading through the literature and seeing what's happening, that um, largely the economic and financial costs associated with climate change risk, I'd say, are not only likely, um, but probably inevitable in many ways. Um, so let me let me just talk to you through a bit of this. Uh, and I think it's interesting that one of the things, that, the first things that comes up when you talk about climate risk is about physical risks and transition risks. And there's a dichotomy between the two. Um, so I, I don't know if it would be useful maybe just to spend a bit of time on this before we go forward. Great. <laughs> So, yeah, the physical risk idea is, is really just about the idea that climate change um, is we're hearing from climate ch- scientists, and more and more evidence is coming out of this, there's successive reports, is that you can have um, two two basic varieties of this physical risk of climate change. And one is about severe events. So you can think about storms, sudden floods, landslides, heat waves, wildfires. These sorts the of things we would term acute physical risks, and we see them occurring once in a while. We see we had, we had bushfires in Australia. Of course, um, which is hardly remembered probably at this stage, after all, is COVID um, um, information overload. But at the end of the day, those those were certainly risks. And we've seen floods, landslides, these sorts of things happen with an increasing regularity. And the second element of physical risk is really about this idea that it's just more a chronic risk in the form of a slow rise in global temperatures, causes rising sea levels, droughts, maybe the health of the oceans. And these sorts of things can entail, and probably would entail, financial costs at some stage. and, and indeed, the estimates we see out there and one of the, the real purposes of the work we've been doing in the ECB is try to get a bit more grasp upon, as the report title would suggest, positive, uh, Positively Green, is about stick, stick, you know, maybe diverting away from the normative issues, which tends to characterize the climate debate, and think more about the positive dimension. What can we actually measure? And, and that can help inform decision-making. And the cost of, of no action from what we see in the literature is around one-tenth to one-fifth of global GDP. By the end of the century, it could be wiped out um, with this physical risk channel I was just mentioning. Now, in current GDP terms, that's around 8 to 17 trillion US dollars. So, non trivial amount. And, you know, the industrially could be quite, you know, quite uh, pronounced across industries, and it's agriculture, fisheries, energy, tourism, construction, insurance, these types of industries. So, it's not, it's not trivial amounts, and it's probably quite pervasive both across sectors and across geographies. Now, those are the physical risks. Now, indeed, there's also transition risks, which is, you know, and think of the COVID example, this idea that there are pandemic-related health risks, but there are also measures that we take to avoid them. And those measures we take to avoid them can have economic costs, of course, benefits as well in terms of the health benefits or the the climate benefits in this case. Um, But nevertheless, they can have side effects. And um, here in this case, we're thinking about things like carbon pricing or technological shifts, which lead to certain stranding of firms or sectors. And here again, there's no free lunch. There's going to be costs of action probably too. Um, The numbers we tend to see kicking around in the literature is around 830 billion uh, US dollars per annum until 2050 would be needed in terms of investment to reach these so-called Paris targets. And these Paris targets about limiting global temperatures to less than two degrees centigrade. And again, industries affected could be pretty widespread. Anyone that uses carbon anyone that's quite, um, say, technologically in need of adaptation would be there. So, again, this Paris Agreement thing is is really quite important. Let's just park it on there. It's it's the idea that less than two degrees of global warming is going to be pretty difficult to achieve. The pledges and targets that were made in 2016 with the Paris Agreement, um, and not yet implemented, I should say, in public policy, suggests that we're, we're still above two degree tipping point to this point whereby climate um, developments tend to lead to unstable physical risk manifestations. And if, if we really want to adhere to these targets, we're not thinking about action decades hence. We're thinking about next year already, that adaptation would have to take place. And think about, again, just the last thing on the COVID lockdowns, we're around 8% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions at the height of the lockdowns. And that's the type of number we're talking about would be needed in order and sustained over over years and years for the next decades to get to these Paris objectives of less than two degrees or less and then or down to 1.5 degrees centigrade global warming. So very, very important numbers and suggesting then that there's an inevit- inevitability of climate costs that industry, you know, the financial industry should be aware of, either in the form of physical disasters or in the form of measures to, to avert these disasters. And we have to see that that's going to, you know, slowly going to have to feed into to financial market pricing.
0: Right I'm really glad you brought in the parallel to the pandemic Paul because one of the things that we see both in the boardrooms of companies as well as in the in the sort of meeting rooms of uh, top level of governments is this issue the trade off between efficiency and resiliency so we've spent on the pandemic side the last 3 decades in pursuit of efficiency we have lean inventories and not much um, by way of, you know, internalizing risks. And as a result, when a pandemic happens, we find ourselves extremely vulnerable. But of course, the trade-off, as you said, there is no free lunch. If you want to be more resilient, you would have to give up some e- efficiency and it'll cost you money. Uh, so on the climate change side or on the pandemic side, I think the arguments go exactly the same direction. So hopefully this, this sort of peril that you're making would be made by um, many uh, climate evangelists, if you will, so that people who need convincing will find one more uh, motivating uh, point. So well, the numbers you mentioned are scary, let's put it plainly, and, and they would be very costly uh, if we want to avoid uh, climate cataclysm. And of course, there are some uncertainties around the estimates, we all recognize that. But generally speaking, um, it's not all down the f- uh, future. Uh, we have seen, as you mentioned, uh, forest fires in Australia and so on, that climate change related risks have already started manifesting and insurance companies, for example, have been paying heavy bills. So by and large, from a regulatory perspective, from a supervisory perspective, I mean, what is the view? Are financial markets beginning to price in the prospect of climate shocks? And what progress has taken so far uh, in terms of building capacity?
1: Yeah, so I think a good, very good question. I think there you you have the idea that Financial markets arguably are not really pricing this in an earnest. And there are probably places where you could argue it, it is happening uh, slowly in terms of the, 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 the element of, of, of awareness, but being built in the prices, not really yet. Um, at the same time, I have to say green capacity is really building very, very rapidly. And But I think it's building rapidly in a way we have to be a little bit um, worried about how that development will take place. And let, me, let me first think about you know why would markets be relatively... Um, rationally thinking about being complacent about this risk at the moment. I think that it boils down to three things. I mean, the first is the idea that there are biases. You no, know, There's there's certainly some element of maybe even rational myopia, in a sense, that markets have to be more concerned about things which have an immediate and tangible impact. Um, and from the backward-looking perspective, there's a salience bias. We've seen a lot more academic research now on climate coming through. And the salience bias is the idea that you tend, you tend to overweight probabilities based on the ease to which events can be recalled. And it's just this idea that we overestimate, based on vividness, proximity, or emotional impact, um, recent events. And they tend to fade pretty quickly from our memory whenever we face other big shocks. Um, but I think the more important is this forward-looking. So I think Mark Carney was the one who, who made the point about tragedy of the horizon, um, the plan on tragedy of the commons idea that there's an externality with climate. And this idea that you know, existential threats to the climate, to the environment, are probably neglected by policymakers and investors alike. Um, because they seem a little bit more intangible or remote until they actually strike. Um, So that's the idea of, you know, there may be some biases at play. I think the second, the more important thing with financial markets is there's an informational failure. There's a clear informational failure here. Um, And that's something we really do stress in our report. It's this idea that um, financial markets probably would be quite willing, and we're seeing much more willingness to price climate risk. It's just, are they really able... And I think the three different elements here really complicate pricing at the moment, and that's first the data tend to be very incomplete. Um, so there's there's a, a Basel-based body. Mike Bloomberg has been the head um, in the past, which is about a task force on climate-related financial disclosures, and they have been doing really really helpful work um, in in terms of trying to tell us what should firms be disclosing for their climate metrics. And what has happened, of course, is a voluntary standard. And you see this incomplete reporting means that there's a selection bias, obviously, in the firms that report. Um, so some firms might be more willing or able to report than others. And this leads to a fact that we just don't really have a complete view. It's just absent data in many respects. But the second, I think, big problem is that the data disclosures we tend to have are also inconsistent. And I, I, don't, I guess you and your listeners might be familiar with the term greenwashing, a bit like right. whitewashing. Of course. Um, yeah, this idea that you can, you can throw a windmill and an oil rig and claim that that's <laughs> green. Uh, and I think this is the idea that this is lack of accepted global methodology for defining what's a green asset um, and what's maybe a brown asset, something that's more polluting. Um, there's work ongoing in terms of developing standards, but it's still work that's in progress and still a little bit, say, say segmented in terms of jurisdictions. And Europe's been doing some work, and as China's been doing some work, but they're not really fully, fully um, meeting in the middle yet. And that's certainly not something that's become a global standard as yet. And the third issue is really about this insufficiency of data. Um, So so emissions are a little bit hard to define. And it's, you know, it's it's not for want of trying to to measure these things properly. It's the idea that you have scopes of emissions. You have basically what you produce. Let's take a diesel car, for example. You produce a diesel car, you produce an electric car. I can measure carbon emissions of that car based on the inputs that I have, based on the actual production I have. But I don't say anything necessarily, usually in the reporting that we see now, about downstream emissions. What happens when I actually use that car, when it gets out into the market? So perversely, you might actually have a situation, you often do, where electric cars look a lot more emissions intensive than diesel cars uh, for the time being. So this idea that incomplete, inconsistent, insufficient data really hamper the ability of markets to actually allocate, do what they do best. So informational failure in, in terms of markets is really going to, I think, be at the heart of an allocated failure. And so beyond the, these first two things I mentioned, so this idea about biases, the idea about informational failures, I think there's the third thing is really about the public nature, this public good, nature of the problem. Um, you have this idea that, of course, widespread global public policy would need be needed to internalize externalities. Recalling from my, from my um, sort of oft-read environmental economics textbook back in the, in the 90s when I was studying, was the idea that you have this, this public goods tend to have an externality. That externality needs to be priced. You'd need public policy often to, to be an instrument through which this is priced. And it doesn't really seem that, you know, we think about who's going to tackle that. It's a tough one. Um, If you look at CO2 emissions across the world, and there are reasonably good data there as part of Paris monitoring, is the top five emitters are around 58% of the total. So it's China, U.S., India, Russia, and Japan. Um, The EU shares are relatively smaller. The the largest seven countries in the EU, the European Union, is around 7.2% of global emissions. Um, But at the same time, you know, policy is going to have to be coordinated if you're going to tackle this. It is a global issue and probably needs a global solution. Um, so with that in mind, I've talked a little bit about why financial markets are having trouble pricing the, 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 the climate risk. If you're OK with that, maybe just turn to a little bit about green market capacity, which is building sure. pretty rapidly. And, and I think you see this, I, I think you see it in Asia, you see it in Europe, you see it in the US alike, that um, across the main global financial markets, capacity is building. Um, and what we're seeing is, is both in, in, in equity space through this environmental social governance, ESG metrics, uh, metrics are, are building up quite rapidly, um, but also in the green bond space, so both in equities and bonds. And on the side of equities, certainly there is the issue, I think I'll go back to this, this idea about um, incomplete, insufficient, and inconsistent data, because this inconsistent point in ESG is a bit of an issue. So at the moment, you you line up ESG scores, take take the same emissions uh, profile of firms, you'll find that different um, index providers tend to provide markedly different ESG scores. They're, they're tending to converge a little bit more, but there's certainly not a uh, complete convergence. And, you know, that could be just because the E, the environmental side, and ESG is not the full story. But I think it's more along the lines of it's, it's very hard for these index providers to come up with a consistent methodology for measuring these things. Now, what we've done in the report is tended to, to focus a little bit more on green bond markets. So away from equity space, which is a bit more in this ESG kind of opaque. The E is part of the ESG and E is only, climate is only part of the E. Thinking more about green bonds which just very much earmarked towards green activities in principle. And there in the green side, what we've seen is pretty interesting. It's that there's an exponential growth in this market. Um, but despite this exponential growth in the overall outstanding amounts of these this, this, this segment of the corporate bond market and the government bond market is still pretty small. So your denominated green bond issuance, let's talk a little bit about what that's, what's been, that's been doing over the last while. So since 2013, which is effectively when it started in earnest in, in bigger numbers, it's increased around tenfold in euro-denominated terms. And euro-denominated terms are not irrelevant here. It's around 50% of the total of green bond issuance. So interestingly, it doesn't really coincide with the issuance um, of corporate bond markets in general or government bond markets, where you probably have more dominant US dollar issuance. Here in the case of green space, it's more euro issuance, interestingly. Right. Um, and it's around 100 billion is the numbers we, we, we compute for 2019 um, <clears throat> in euros. Now, if, if I look at what the European uh, Commission is telling us in terms of what needs we are we have to be climate neutral by 2050, which is the EU's objective. Um, we're talking about $290 billion of additional yearly investments are needed over the coming decades. So still a third of what's needed, but it's been really increasing rapidly. And just to give you another figure, around only 4.7% of the overall global bond supply is green, or earmarked specifically is green. And 95% of corporate issuance doesn't have that accreditation. Um, at the same time, and I think this is an important point, around 70% of what's labeled as a green bond at the moment tends to be in industries which you would not arguably say are necessarily green industries. Um, energy-intensive industries tend to be quite dominant. But of course, it's a function of you can do green things in so-called brown industries. Right, right. Um, so that, that's basically what we're seeing in terms of green bond market development. It's, 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 it's developing very rapidly. Of course, the maturity structure is still an issue. It still is that 80% of green bonds have a maturity less than 10 years. So it's not commensurate really to the horizons we think about climate risk. Um, But at the same time, as the the overall amounts, outstanding amounts increase, so too do the the sort of offerings in terms of the ratings buckets. We see more and more private sector participation in green bond issuance. It's gone up from very little amount around four or five years ago to around 50% of the total now. So public versus private, we're seeing private around half of green bond issuance. And within that half, of course, you have a pretty broad reading across the rating spectrum. So investors have more and more choice now, um, which should be helpful in terms of thinking, well, maybe past trends in this case are not really the best arbiter of what's going to happen in the future.
0: No, Totally. And I think that the fact that you mentioned that there's been a tenfold increase in issuances is uh, extremely encouraging. Paul, just as a quick side note, has the pandemic slowed things down this year in terms of uh, green bond issuances or not really?
1: It has. And I think, um, you know, admittedly, all bond issuance at some stage should take a little bit of a pause. Um, But we're seeing we're seeing numbers come back now and we're seeing a lot more announcements of potential green issuances will come alongside corporate issuance in general. I think the difficulty we have and maybe the pandemic is a good place to just insert this little factoid from the report. too, is this idea that um, what we had is relatively limited evidence of pricing differential. So if you want investors to say, well, I'm happy to hold green bonds because I get some sort of gain. The median pricing gain seems to be relatively limited. Um, you can, you know, some studies have been looking at this, trying to see if some controlling for factors like size, momentum, or book-to-market of firms, um, suggested there's some compensation or premium already in there for carbon emission risk. Um, but what we find in general is, at least on aggregate and in just sort of an unconditional manner, it doesn't seem that return on equity for relative polluting firms versus non-polluting firms is much different. What we do see, and I think that's why I wanted to bring in this pandemic point. And, and we're still studying this as we speak, is this idea that there seems to be, while you have you know, the different moments of the return distribution, you have the, the median seems to be relatively similar. But if you go to the second moment, go to the volatility, it seems to be there's a little bit um, less volatility in so-called values investing. Um, so that there tends to be more buy-to-hold strategies here. Um, and interestingly, as you go to the higher elements of the distribution, so downsides, um, deviation or extreme volatility and how that influences pricing, seems to be from the the data we're seeing, both in ESG and green bond side, that maybe there's an element of um, relatively less risk, even if the return may be um, more or less aligned.
0: Interesting. I mean, I I say it interesting because also in the last three, four months, uh, the the notion that was becoming popular after the 08-09 crisis, which was the tail risk hedging, you know, the Nassim Taleb type uh, investment strategy, uh, that's become popular again. And you think (laughs) that People who are looking at long-duration phenomena like climate change would also find some sort of a convergence between tail risk hedging and, and these sort of uh, products coming out of the green space. Um, Paul, earlier you talked about sort of the global exposure or risk to climate change and the, the rather alarming $8 to $18 trillion numbers for the rest of the century. But looking more specifically at banks and insurance companies, um, what are their exposure to potential
1: repricing of climate change risk? Yeah, no, good good point. I think that's really our focal point as regulators. I mean, you have to follow this model that's often used, um, that which is measured can be managed. Um, if we're going to pursue policy, and I think that's obviously in a policy institution like the ECB or many of our partners we're working with, we're interested in noting, you know, would you actually change standards to reflect this? Well, we want that to be certainly evidence-based, and that's the reason we're collecting evidence, to be sure that we can actually collect robust evidence. Um, and one of the things we actually have quite a quite a good grasp on at the moment are disclosures of banks in particular, as we're a, a bank supervisor. And as such, um, pretty granular data sets have, have been helpful in engaging the, the extent of these exposures. So on, on the side of banks, and I won't talk about the insurance sector, which is pretty obvious. I mean, insurance sector is going to face increased claims. And in fact, I don't even have to put that in the forward tense, uh, the future tense. They already have been. So losses from climate events, storms, water rises, heat waves, have been rising steadily over the last 30 years, and what we see is a historic peak. So insurance sector is certainly at the front line, particularly at physical risk. But if we talk about banks, and I think that's, that's quite nice that we can look at banks with a, a much more precise level of detail, with a very fine-tooth comb, um, we, we can pick up quite some, some exposure, at least on the European side, where we have the, the, the best possible view. So here we have around, we looked at around 1,000 credit institutions. That's, you know, this is in our parlance, of significant institutions, the ones we supervise at ECB, and less significant institutions, the ones that are just still at the national level. And around 9,000 corporates. So that's around 5 trillion of, of euros of, of exposures towards global corporates. Um, and that's covering around 30% of firms. Um, and that's, again, back to this point, disclosures are not complete, we rely on public disclosures about CO2 emissions, um, and that is still a, a certainly a constraining element. Notwithstanding these, these constraints, um, we have a couple of findings which are pretty interesting. Um, so the first is this idea that the emissions firms generate um, tend to be largely but not entirely determined by their industrial sector. Now let, me, let me drill down into that notion. So at the industry level, think about electricity, mining, manufacturing versus finance or, or insurance. Um, what we tend to find is firm emissions are largely determined by that industrial um, allocation. So, an, a, a firm in the utility sector, a firm doing manufacturing, tends to be generally pr- producing more CO2 emissions um, per unit of sales or just on aggregate than, say, in finance, insurance, education, these other types of industries. At the same time, and I think this is the, the more interesting part about what we have, is that we see that indeed variations for firms, you can have very wide variations within a sector. So in a, in a sense, there's this idea that some companies really manage to conduct their business in a much more efficient emissions and efficient way. And this gives rise to the notion of climate risk, which we at a central bank are very much interested in, in, in measuring, of course. Um, but there's also this idea of, of, of enabling policies or opportunities that might come with climate. And you can imagine firms that are far away from this efficient uh, production frontier actually have quite some potential low-hanging fruit to get there. So there, there is some element of opportunity. And on the side of investors, it could be an interesting one to consider as well, that this, this notion that firms can be quite polluting or non-polluting in the given sector, even when controlling for the sector they're in, um, is, is a big finding. And I think this idea that that's pretty, pretty much across the board, but it's most prevalent in manufacturing. So manufacturing can be done in very emissions-intensive ways or in very emissions-effective ways. Um, So with that in mind, the the other point we have, apart from this idea that you probably need to look at the firms and not the sectors to try and figure out which of the firms which are going to be most susceptible to financial market repricing, is this idea that if there were that repricing, so let's say rating agencies, um, which themselves are are quite uh, actively now looking at climate as a potential source of um, ratings risk, is this idea that the banking losses that could arise, should there be a re-rating? Of firms or sectors could be pretty significant. Um, So, we've done some simulations um, based on the the granular data I mentioned. And what we find is is if you had uh, indiscriminate um, re rating of entire sectors, which I'd say is very, very unlikely, so you consider the whole manufacturing sector, the whole electrical sector gets a one notch ratings downgrade. Um, Through a Merton model, we can basically pump out what that would have been in terms of banking sector perspective losses when we have the exposures there too. And it would be pretty significant, as you could imagine, um, if you had whole sectors being downgraded. Now, let's take a more realistic scenario, which is, again, getting back to this point, firms tend to be very emissions-intensive or tend to be very emissions-effective within a given sector. Let's say that financial markets and rating agencies take a view that those firms, which are the most emissions-intensive, are going to get re-rated um, towards the best in class. If that's to happen, and we do a few simulations based on this you'd expect banking sector losses to be in a range around ten percent um, which which would be meaningful of course you know? um, but this idea is that that is a pretty radical scenario we have the ratings agencies come in overnight and make these, these these shifts so what we're seeing in parallel amongst banks is that they are reducing the carbon intensity of their portfolios from what we can measure what we can tell but it's a slow process and again absent some sort of major trigger like a A carbon tax or something about potentially big technological innovation and renewables, carbon storage, carbon capture. We're probably not going to see that to be terribly immediate um, unless it's forced to be immediate. And again, getting back to this idea about externalities, that firms may not fully internalize these. Sorry, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, so I think, you know, the the idea is that we've done a lot of work about then looking at the exposures. But I think the, the key thing for us is thinking about, you know, what would the forward looking perspective be? And I think that's that's the last part of our report, and if, if you're if you're good with that, I think it might turn to that because that's that's pretty interesting to think about. Maybe the past isn't a guide in this respect. We're we're talking about big structural breaks here,
0: right? Uh, so we'll we'll talk about the forward-looking scenario in a second, which is in your report in great detail. I just wanted to ask you, from a policy perspective, when you talk about the need for. The financial sector to be nudged into sort of, you know, repricing these issues to some extent uh, with the ratings downgrade possibility in their minds. From your perspective, a carrot based approach or a stick based approach works better? So, carbon tax in my mind is more of a stick type approach. Um, Carbon credit, perhaps, is more like a (laughs) carrot type approach. Or am I sort of saying the same thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I think the idea is you have to get back to, to, to measuring that externality and making sure that firms internalize this. Um, and I think you have to go back to the idea that transparency is probably the best disinfectant. I think the first and foremost, our view is this informational failures plaguing markets. They seem to want to do it. They're Indeed, there's a great investment. I suspect it's the same in, uh, where you reside, as well as the same in, here in Europe Absolutely. for green products with this idea in mind that there's probably an inevitable transition going to take place. Um, the speed of which will be governed probably by some public policy measures. Now, back to your question. Um, stick based tough to say. I mean, look, I think that's more of a public policy question for the politicians. And indeed, what we find is that the IMF has been doing a lot of work on this. And I think their last fiscal monitor from last year um, did suggest that carbon pricing is probably going to be the most effective way to galvanize the sorts of change and the transitions you need to get away from these largely physical Armageddon, physical risk scenarios. Um, How you implement that They did a little bit less work on this. And I cannot say I have a definitive answer to that question. But of course, from the side of investors, what I'm seeing is even absent public policy and just public discussions largely on this policy, you're seeing firms quite interested in moving there from a perspective of there may be returns to be had or opportunities as much as there may be risks.
0: Right, so Paul, uh, you touched upon simulation analysis where we were measuring the impact of a credit rating downgrade, uh, even like a single notch for banked exposure and, and you're suggesting that you know, these simulations show that credit losses could reach up to 10 percent of total assets. Uh, what about sort of as you just recently talked about, the forward-looking scenario analysis part of your report? Uh, and, and just in case you know some people are not sure what we're talking about, it is the positively green measuring climate change risk to financial stability report that just came out, and you were one of the principal authors of that. So walk us through some of the forward-looking scenario analysis in this report.
1: Thanks, uh, thanks, Timur. And indeed, this European Systemic Risk Board report, the, all of the gross details are in there, and I won't. I will spare you all of the 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 excruciating details related with running models and picking up all these data. Uh, I think the, the, the and maybe cut down to the the punchline, which is effectively when we look at the element of um, uh, forward-looking scenarios. We're a bit constrained at the moment by both data, I've talked about it in detail, but also models. Um, you know, at, at a central bank um, or in general at most financial or economic policy-making institutions, we've tended not to be hiring many climate scientists over the last years. Um, hence, the models we've developed tended to be for, for use for policy purposes, which tended to have a bit of a shorter horizon. And indeed, that's a little bit of a constraining factor, but we, we, we make do with what we have, and I think we have some pretty interesting results. Now, Keeping in mind this idea that we have a shorter horizon, it's about a five-year horizon that we run forward. And the idea is our models were predicated on the so-called dynamics around a steady state. Um, So it's not about long-run trends, but thinking about that shorter run or medium-run sort of trends that are consistent with the types of objectives and mandates we have. So we have a five-year horizon. And in a five-year horizon, we tend to look only at transition risk. So recall back this physical risk, transition risk element, transition risk in the form of, what could be in, in form of public policy or technological changes, which could you know, accelerate the climate transition. Um, and again, here, what we're looking at are a couple of shocks. And that's the idea of a carbon price increase. Now, here we're talking about a sharp carbon price increase. We call it a delayed policy implementation scenario, where you actually have to increase that, ratchet it up very, very quickly instead of a bit more gradually. Um, and we also have another one, which is a little bit more about the share of renewables within a given sector. What can we say? Um, and that's the scenario narrative we construct. Now, with that in mind, this doubling of renewables per sector or this increase of carbon taxes up to $100 a tonne, we can run through a macro scenario um, with a, a, a standard way of we do stress testing. Um, so we take a, a standard baseline forecast and then we start to see what happens when you start to implement these um, other scenarios which could have more adverse implications for GDP or for um uh, bank capital. And that's, again, abstracting from the perspective of benefits from physical risk. We're just thinking here about transition risk. What would be the costs of action, not the benefits? And there, are, of course, are benefits. And I talked about the outside. Now, we have 56 economic industries. Um, we we delve into those in details. And what's pretty nice is we're able to take um, existing models and run that through these models uh, with the idea of just looking at the individual sectors what is the type of carbon intensity they tend to have? So the fossil fuel intensity, of the production, um, this idea about capital depreciation, which could be there in terms of um, renewables or of the CO2 prices, idea that coal, oil and gas tend to be production inputs for many firms. And through sectoral resolution techniques we have, we're able to pick up a pretty fine grid of what individual sectors are using in terms of their typical inputs and um, in the renewable side versus the non-renewable side and in terms of the carbon intensity of those those elements that they're using as inputs to production. Um, So with this, we have this idea of so-called embodied CO2 emissions. Um, And as you can imagine, firms like mining, petrochemical, utilities, these tend to be the industries that are most vulnerable to um, potential uh, destabilization when it comes to increasing carbon prices or having a larger share of renewables. Um, And what we do is we we include in there a widespread amount of um, financial assets, equities and bonds are both in there. Um, And we also have corporate loans, um, which we go through a survey, uh, which is done in the Netherlands of of banks, to learn a bit more about how this could feed through into bank balance sheets. Um, Interestingly, so what happens if you just run it through, first of all, looking at what are the GDP impacts of a carbon price uh, taxation sharp increase or an increase in the share of renewables? Well, interestingly, what you see is GDP tends to decline. Um, of course, probably more in the case we have a demand shock than the supply shock, which is the, the carbon price shock versus the supply shock, which is more the, the technology shock. Um, and that GDP increase decrease tends to be around 2.5% maximum in the short term. But what's interesting is it tends to, to, to then wear off as you move forward, as you get some dynamics in the model, which tend to help um, the situation improve as you get past this trough. Um, and you start seeing this technological adoption also um, becoming more widespread. Now, what we have there is, is in terms of the state of the art model we're running, is is really about the stress testing model that has macro financial feedbacks. That's really important because, of course, banks do interact with the the economy. Um, banks as relationship lenders tend to um, move in, in in ways which which involve deleveraging at times when the traditional borrowers tend to uh, have a bit more difficulty and they have to move into this more sort of risky space of prospective borrowers. And what we see there is that um, running through these models, you can think about what might be the implications on bank capital. Um, So bank capital in the sense of, you know, we know the exposures, we've run through the GDP shocks, and we've with these two different scenarios I'm mentioning about policy and technology, and what you see is that CET1, so capital ratios we tend to look at as regulators, deviate from the baseline around, say, one percentage point, maybe 0.8 percentage points um, at the maximum, at the peak of the the imposition of these these more sort of drastic climate measures, uh, aversion measures. And and what that implies is is really a a fall which is not only relatively limited, but temporary. And and let me mention why that's limited. Um, When we run stress test exercises for adverse scenarios in the standard stress test variety, we tend to see reductions in capital of around three percentage points or more. So 0.8 percentage points is really a fraction of that amount. Um, So with that in mind, our our impression is that even if you were to have particularly drastic um, public policy measures in the form of a more rapid tightening of carbon taxation, or again in your your world of of, of idea about carrots and sticks, having more incentives towards technology adoption, uh, you you tend to see that the the, the impacts both on, on GDP and the economy And in terms of banks, would be actually relatively contained. Um, And those contained measures, you have to take into account, that's transition risk alone. So let's bring them back to the 8 to 17 trillion losses you could have with global GDP. If you had physical risk manifestation or former climate risk, the numbers are relatively small. So I think at the end of the day, what we've seen so far is in the models that we're able to run, is this idea that probably the costs are contained, they are mean, they're, they're still meaningful, it's not that they're, 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 they're insignificant, but they're contained and, and temporary. Now, what's happened to us is we've had to think really carefully about running this exercise. We, as I said at the beginning, we're not climate scientists in general. We, 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 we liaise with them, we're learning about the subject, we're much more on the economic and financial side, is what do we, what do we need to learn or need to improve in order to give you a bit more precise Estimates of this potential GDP impact, precise estimates of potential banking sector impacts, and to give you more trade-offs: physical versus transition risk. Recalling that at the beginning, this idea that measures to mitigate, to mitigate or uh, avert the potential costs of climate change can be costly, and also measures to that uh, the, the, the climate change itself can be very costly. How do we evaluate that trade-off? Is probably something we're going to need models which have a better link of climate. Um, change back to the macroeconomy, back to the financial sector to do. And at the moment, I'd say we're still in the development phase, and it's going to take a bit longer, but it's certainly an active research agenda we have at the moment.
0: But This is an absolutely critical issue. I, I think that the fact that the short-term trade-offs are not so onerous that you know it sort of paralyzes us into the, the daunting long-term issues, I think is a critical insight. And, and I, I wish you the best of luck in terms of finding data and and, and convincing the financial sector to sort of embrace the short-term trade-offs. Um, Paul, the report that we have been sort of alluding to, again, the title is Positively Green: Measuring Climate Change Risk to Financial Stability, has four institutions' names on the, on the title: ECB, Eurosystem. European Systemic Risk Board, and European System of Financial Supervision. So clearly, Europe is taking a very strong role in um, pushing forward the climate change uh, risk recognition agenda. Um, But uh, you also have been observer and participant in uh, other multilateral initiatives and so on, whether it is the Financial Stability Board and FSB or Basel Committee. Could you give us a sense of the key international initiatives that are in play right now?
1: Absolutely. Um, No, and I think that you're right. Europe is, is, uh, particularly with the new European Commission in place um, since last year, that they're really quite keen on on pushing forward the green agenda. Um, So within Europe, of course, you're seeing a lot of initiatives there. And and a couple of things you're seeing at the moment is really about sustainable finance in general, your questions about carrots and sticks, how to provide more of these, um, and make use of the emissions trading scheme as one potential conduit. Um, But also this idea of non-financial firm disclosures, that we need to make those mandatory, increase those transparency really is needed in these markets in order to improve upon the prospect for for, avoiding destabilizing shocks. Now, with that in mind, Europe, as I mentioned at the outset, as well, is a pretty small contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, but it can be an exporter of standards. Um, So in that respect, I think some of the work could be quite meaningful. At the same time, um, there's obviously a complex issue with this climate change question. It's one which doesn't respect borders, clearly. It's about atmospheric um, CO2 emissions. Now, with that in mind, um, we have to work with our, our international partners as well, and I think in a diligent way, and that's been happening in earnest. Um, maybe a few things to mention. So the network greening the financial system that you mentioned, an interesting network, um, developed in, just in the wake of the Paris Agreement in 2016. Um, at the time of founding, if I'm not mistaken, it was only eight members. Um, and those eight members have now grown in terms of membership up, up to above 60 members. Um, and in the meantime, all the global standard setting bodies are at the table. Um, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, the Financial Stability Board. Um, you have also the elements of the insurance supervision industry, IOSCO, which is the securities industry regulator, are all there at the table. Now, this network agreement in the financial system, I think, has been a very, very effective coalition of these countries trying to assess what can we learn about climate um, for the pro- from the perspective of risk management. And that's really why the ECB, I think, uh, is is thinking it can make a key difference in this respect is risks is something we all have to worry about in, in central banks and supervisors. And that's a place where they bring them all together. Um, they've been releasing a, a variety of reports. I think they've been very helpful reports um, in terms of doing a few things. I mean, one is clarifying what are the main gaps, data being one of them. Um, they identified that quite early, um, but they've also more recently been thinking more about how do we standardize scenarios? What scenarios can we run in a consistent way? How do we try and measure these, these elements, You know, both the models we use to liaison with climate scientists, what types of data we're collecting, in order to come up with a better assessment about what might constitute the risks. Um, And with that in mind, we're working very closely with them. But again, what's been happening more recently is that the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, the Financial Stability Board, just to name the banking wings, uh, the one with more banking focus of the supervisory um, and standard-setting bodies, have really come to the table with a lot more um, diligent and I think more, more encompassing work programs. Again, the idea is first and foremost to measure, so to get a better grip on what are the data issues, what are the transmission channels we should be thinking about, how do we start thinking more and more about how do we measure this risk. Um, And that we're working very, very closely with them. um, And I think that that holds true with all of our international partners. Um, So, you know, watch this space. There's going to be more and more coming when it comes to the central banks, the supervisors, and how they're looking at climate risk, and how they're they're, they're churning out more and more usable data that can help better price these risks and better than, you know, effectively um, involve prevention rather than the cure when it comes to thinking about how these risks might manifest themselves.
0: Right. What can be measured can be managed. Uh, Paul Hebert, thank you
1: very much for your excellent insights. Pleasure. And it was great to talk to you, uh, and I hope that we retain the dialogue going forward as this issue certainly will evolve. Absolutely.
0: We wish you, ECB and the ESRB, the best of luck in carrying forward this very important work. Uh, thanks to our listeners for your time. You can find all our research publications in multimedia. And yes, that includes the other 19 copytime podcasts by Googling DBS Research Library.